Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dr. Bob Oxley. Another episode of tips, topics, issues, and positions. And this is kind of unique because this is going to be part two of our investigation of capitalism versus socialism. And uh, it's our pleasure to have Dr. Uh, Joe Green back on uh, and uh, discuss uh, whether or not uh, capitalism is indeed superior to social socialism. But uh, Dr. Green has indicated that it is indeed superior. So welcome back, Professor Green. Glad to be back, Bob. It's been a nice week. It's been a great week. A lot of information coming out of Washington and uh, North Korea and China. <laughs> the world's changing. But uh, we're looking at uh, some aspects. We, we discussed a little bit about the human uh, uh, evolution as far as political ideologies are concerned and government ideologies. And uh, I have about uh, half, uh, half of the questions that I wanted to give you. I got out in the last one, but this is part two <laughs> of capitalism. And your position is that indeed capitalism is superior to socialism. Right. I think it's superior as an economic system in generating wealth and goods and services. And I think it's also superior as a moral system. Uh, in uh, in creating human flourishing as opposed to uh, human uh, suffering and degradation. Yeah. Okay. What I'd like to do today is, since this is the second part and we're continuing with the uh, investigation, I'd like to take a look at the uh, topic of economic freedom uh, between uh, capitalism and socialism. And I guess what I really want to hear from you is what do we really mean by economic freedom? as it pertains to each of the uh, political ideologies? Uh, if you're going to have a, a free market economic system, uh, it's one of the main characteristics, one of the main general characteristics uh, that is required. It doesn't, uh, a free market system doesn't work if people aren't free to consume, uh, make the consumption choices that they want, and if people aren't free to start uh, businesses and organizations and institutions to try to satisfy uh, the consumer needs that people want. Um, at the, its basis, uh, there's some, uh, some institutional uh, characteristics that we usually associate with economic freedom, and they're certainly necessary uh, by themselves. They don't create a, a market system uh, but without them, you don't get a market system. Uh, I can go through the list if you want. The first sure. one is private property. Uh, that always has to be first and fundamental. Uh, without private property, uh, individuals uh, can't get the uh, proper signals that are necessary to know whether uh, their uh, actions are going to uh, be profitable and therefore if they should remain in that particular business. Uh, or if their actions are going to uh, have too many costs and therefore they should get out and try something else, okay? Um, private property means that those decisions are my responsibility. Uh, if I make the right choices, if I'm, um, uh, if I'm good with my, uh, the assets that I have that I own uh, and I'm able to create a... Uh, a set of goods and services that uh, consumers like, then I'll be, uh, I'll, I'll make a profit. But at the same time, we have to have the signal that says, 
you uh, don't take care of the consumers, then, uh, then, then you will fail. And private property is the one that does that the best. Uh, the other kind of system that's available is a common property system, and it disturbs, it, it disturbs that, that signal uh, when it arises. Uh, common property uh, generally has, has been used it was, uh, by people attempting to create some sort of uh, their, their ideal social system. It's been based on uh, re religion. It's been based on various kinds of secular ideals that someone has uh, decided uh, life would be better if we all shared things in common. Uh, sometimes I'd, they idealize a medieval village or a, a Russian mirror or uh, uh, some other uh, uh, agricult usually agricultural uh, uh, ideal that they think happened in, in the past. But the, the, the problem with common property is that you get uh, two really negative features when, when you try, try to do that. That is, the common property is designed to make everything equal. The problem is the contribution uh, to production is never equal. Some people always do more and some people less. Some people are younger, stronger. Some people are smarter. Some people are more ambitious. Some there are all kinds of reasons, and uh, people uh, tend and that some people are more productive than other people. In a common property system where everything is shared equally, uh, the the results of my efforts or talent or uh, luck or whatever it is that allowed me to be more productive than someone else um, are undermined and our experience with these kinds of systems is people get resentful mm. okay um, in the uh, in the uh, experience that the early pilgrims had the people who landed at Plymouth Plymouth Rock uh, William Bradford records that uh, the people whose uh, who were having to share equally the surpluses that they had created through their efforts uh, saw it as a kind of slavery. Okay, that was the term that, that they used. Uh, the second issue is that in an equal distribution society, you have the people who are not producing as much getting the same amount. And while uh, uh, that has a nice idealistic appeal to it, uh, they tend to uh, uh, want to get the uh, the equal amount that uh, they're, they're, that this system is entitled them to uh, without doing as much work. They tend to slough off, okay? They tend to not produce as much. They tend, uh, uh, they want to uh, kind of sit back and bask because they know uh, somebody else is going to bring the deer home or somebody else is uh, out in the field and, and going to bring uh, the uh, stuff that they want. And this is what we call moral hazard in social science, okay? okay? Uh, there are uh, accounts uh, of the Jamestown colony, for example, where uh, the Jamestown uh, Corporation, uh, an early joint stock company, had set it up and said, we're going to furnish you with your food, uh, and you're all going to work jointly and communally and share communally this food we bring you on a ship. Uh, the ships that show up, once a year, uh, by then all of the stores had run out, and uh, they found the people starving. Uh, but 
they were as they were starving. They, the captain of the ship recounts uh, that some of the people were out in the street bowling. Now here's woods around Jamestown full of game. Here's a river full of sturgeon and other kinds of of, uh, of fish. But the problem seemed to be that if somebody got ambitious and went out and ca- caught a fish uh, and brought it back, everybody would share. Only one guy was going out and catching the fish. Everybody else wanted to share. So it it does undermine the productivity, uh, a, a common system, under, undermines the productivity. Capitalism forces you to take care of yourself, to, you know, uh, if you don't get go out and work and be ambitious and so on, you don't eat as well. You've got because you have to depend uh, on you. And then in a, in a trading system, uh, I have to specialize and, and, and I have to work hard and get uh, and produce whatever it is I'm producing so that I have something I can trade to somebody else who's working equally hard and isn't going to give up whatever they've made. They're not going to give it to me. I have to have something of value that I can exchange with them. That's interesting. So we are saying that just the... Uh by being human, complacency sets in. Yeah, uh, you know it'd be nice if uh, everybody acted altruistically all of the time. Uh, but as uh, Adam Smith famously said, I think one of his two or three most famous quotations: "It's not from the benevolence of the butcher and the brewer and the baker that we uh, derive our dinner. It's from their regard to their own interest." Economic freedom, uh, you mentioned it was institutional structure. So if we're looking at economic freedom from the least to the most that are free and on the horizontal of the continuum, and we look at the vertical and we look at income per person, how does that work in a capitalist system as compared to a sociological sociologist? I went off on property. I didn't list the other characteristics of freedom, but... You're referring to a chart that I used uh, two weeks ago in a speech uh, that uh, is put together by the Heritage Foundation and the Fraser Institute. They both do a study independently in which they gauge uh, measures of economic freedom by country. Uh, they go out and they, they, they have a, a list of the characteristics of economic freedom, and they try to assess how each nation that they study yes. uh, measures up to those. So uh, private property that I just did is one of them, how secure is private property. Uh, another one is how, uh, how well does the government enforce contracts. That's another characteristic of economic freedom. Uh, how free are prices? How uh, uh, free are or, or does, does the system allow people to keep the profits that they earn, the signal that says you're taking care of consumer needs or, or whether you aren't, um, is trade-free, uh, immigration, those, those are the kinds of things that usually uh, free, uh, relatively easy immigration is, or, or the kinds of things we usually associate with a market system. So they have an index of like 50 measures uh, where they try to get at each one of those characteristics uh, in, a, in a state. And if you... T- and then they rank each state by how economically free they are, how economically unfree they are, with a low number representing economic unfreedom, uh, a two or a one, and a high number like nine or ten representing uh, absolute economic freedom, which doesn't exist anywhere. Okay, uh, places like Hong Kong, 
and Singapore and Denmark and Sweden always rank really, really high. The United States has been falling in uh, in recent years. Uh, there's some reason to think we might come back up in the, in the new studies a little bit. We were down at twelfth in the world, okay, uh, in the last in the last go around. Well, if you take that and then chart it against per capita income in a country, so that uh, on a on on the vertical axis you put per capita income, and then you put this, this economic freedom score, what you see is that per capita income is directly related. There's a direct uh, almost one-to-one correlation between economic freedom and per capita income with those that are unfree having really low per capita incomes, those that are uh, free having really high per capita incomes. Very interesting. Um, so we've talked about private property, land ownership. We're looking at uh, income, wages, things of that sort. Um, when we're talking about when you said about profits are signals and prices are signals, what do, what do we mean by that from a capitalistic, when you make that statement? I... Yeah. Um, an economic system is extremely complex. Uh, and one of the, one of the uh, uh, just as an aside, one of the problems of socialism is uh, the arrogance of people who think that they can plan and engineer and regulate and otherwise interfere with an extremely complex and dynamic system uh, uh, that they can't possibly fully understand, okay? Um, so how does information get around in a, uh, in a market system uh, in, in something as complex as that? Now, what I'm about to des- describe to you is not perfect, okay? There are all kinds of mistakes and so on that get made, but it in my view, it's better than any other uh, t- uh, system that we have of, of assessing this kind of thing. So I, I'll give you an example that is, is pretty famous from Friedrich Hayek uh, in an article he wrote about uh, the problem of knowledge, uh, of knowing all of this stuff. Suppose that uh, uh, in the market for tin, uh, there's some sort of uh, disaster that occurs uh, in a country that produces uh, uh, a big share of the world's tin, okay. okay, so that a shortage is created, all right? Um, the fact that that shortage is created means that there's now less tin in the world and lots of people looking for it, people who used to get it just fine and had contracts and so on, but now it's not there, okay? And so automatically the price begins to rise. Now, when that the price rises because uh, the people who want the tin want it, those who want it badly enough, uh, and it's in short supply, will offer more money in order to get it. And so gradually, uh, uh, prices begin to rise. And the price rise uh, sends a signal to a whole bunch of people who don't, know a, don't have a clue about tin, uh, have no knowledge of tin, uh, have no knowledge of this disaster or, uh, you know, just a passing saw it in the news, kind of this disaster, that tin is scarce. And I better do something about that. You know, if I'm using any tin in my business, uh, uh, maybe I ought to uh, plan on finding some alternative. Or, boy, I better see if I can't uh, find a way to get the short the supplies that are now in, in, 
in shortage. Uh, I better get my people on on board and start offering more money or something if I have, absolutely have to have it. That is, people begin to adjust, okay? And they begin to adjust almost instantaneously because the, the price went up. That is, they begin to conserve, okay? Um, so uh, a high price, while we hate high prices and don't like to pay them, but a high price indicates to everybody that there's a shortage, even though they don't realize that there's a shortage that, uh, that they have to adjust their behavior. It also immediately sends a signal to people who are good at finding and mining tin. Better, boy, there's, uh, these high prices uh, sound really good. There's, uh, there's probably going to be an increase in profits in this. You know, if I've been, make, if I've been doing copper, uh, maybe I should change my process if, I, if I'm capable of doing it. And I better, I better start making some tin uh, and, or find a way. Or if I'm a prospector, I give up this gold stuff. Hey, tin's, tin's a big deal now. And you'll begin to get uh, increased quantities of tin. Okay. Now, it takes a while for all of this to adjust. Prices stay high. But that high price becomes a signal and a goal. Okay. It's a goal for consumers to try to avoid it, to conserve. It's a goal for producers to try to attain it, to create new supplies. And over time, uh, the shortage of tin will be uh, ameliorated and the price will come back down. Okay. For that. So the, the price is going to come back down. So it's actually we're looking at supply and demand. Oh, yeah. I just That was a nice supply and demand uh, I mean, analysis. that's a great example. Yeah, and uh, and I, I and I know some people when computers were first starting that wanted this thing called white boxes. Okay, this computers are making money. Maybe I ought to get it. They knew nothing about computers, but they opened up and they bought, started buying components. But they didn't realize that the innovations were coming out more rapidly than they could keep up with the yeah. <laughs> with the inventory. Yeah. But really, what you're saying is that uh, the, the the economics of of any product whatsoever is that it, this is supply and demand. And, and what you're indicating is there are people that are going to try to jump on the bandwagon, have no idea what they're doing. And that, in other words, well, no, uh, people usually have to kind of know what they're doing. Although, you know, if gold's discovered in California, a whole bunch of people show up who don't know what they're doing and usually didn't do well mm -hmm. in, but profits are a, uh, an attraction. It's a magnet. And a profitable industry, say, the, the example I like to use in class is um, cell phones. Uh, all of us can remember the old flip cell phones, the, the things that look like walkie-talkies or half of walkie-talkies that we were carrying around. Uh, and they kept getting better and better. And some of them had a, a all kinds of stuff going on, and there were Blackberries and so on. And then all of a sudden, 2007, Jobs introduces the iPhone. And the iPhone is a step way higher than anything else on the market. I mean, you can access, it's got more than just, just your directory in it that you can make a phone call with, which is what a phone was, was for, a directory. In a, but suddenly you've got the Internet there, you've got the games there, it's a touch screen. It's really cool. It's got a huge amount of memory. And so all of these other uh, cell phone companies pretty quickly just lost their market share. 
They were just gone. And Jobs, for a couple of years, had a absolute monopoly. Okay? He was the only guy in the market, and he could charge a high price just like that. But those profits were a magnet. I can get a piece of that. If, and so people who knew what they were doing, especially Google was the most successful, but um, uh, Microsoft tried and, uh, and a whole bunch of others. Google wrote the Android uh, operating system. Uh, Samsung and a bunch, Motorola and a bunch of other companies uh, adopted the, the Android system, and suddenly the price starts to fall of the cell phone, okay? okay. The profits are the magnet that bring other competitors in. So long as we don't restrict entry into the market, okay, uh, and say we're only going to let American goods sell in this market. We're not going to let any Canadian or as the president just did. I was going to say, does it? This sounds very familiar. <laughs> yes. Okay. In the last uh, twenty-four but hours, you, you let all of that the, the profits attract all of that competition because each of us. Uh, uh, you, you know, among the other things that we want to do in life, like have loving relationships and uh, enjoy great music and literature and uh, go to a, uh, understand and go to a baseball game, we all want a high standard of living. And uh, uh, if you can find a, a way to spend your time and your effort and your resources that generates a little bit more income, than whatever you're doing now, and if you have the technical capability to get into the cell phone market, suddenly you have lots of people migrating uh, into the market because of the extra profits that are in there. And naturally, over time, that's, uh, that's the big shift forward in the supply curve, as we say, and gradually the price of cell phones comes down to where, uh, you know, uh, now you know, even Apple has to sell its, uh, its uh, not its brand new one, but the later models that, that uh, are, are uh, of the same kind. They, they can't sell as many iPhones because the Android system is selling so many more because it's cheaper. It's what the kids buy. It's what uh, uh, people who don't, want, don't necessarily need the Apple name buy. And, and so it puts pressure on Jobs to bring his price down. Well, um, take it one step further. We are looking at uh, markets for country by country, but we're now multinational. We have globalization process involved. Mm -hmm. And this all fits into profitability. Profitability, if you utilize the lower labor uh, forces in uh, smaller countries, establish a facility and an operation there, uh, try to manipulate the uh, political regime uh, to get favorable tax breaks. Mm -hmm. All of that is what you, some of the examples that you just gave or gave previously in the part one of our, our uh, examination. Uh, we got to think globally now because we, after 2008, we finally all realized, gee whiz, we're all intertwined with every product that's out there. So how does that play into, and here's my question, We've got the uh, People's Republic of China that raised their bamboo curtain and said, come on in and give us your ideas. Found out something interesting. Uh, they're good at uh, regurgitating factual information, but they can't fix anything out of the ordinary. So what they did, they, they, they sent uh, large numbers of students over to our colleges, 
to understand how we teach this thing called critical thinking and analyzing. And they took that back. Now we're seeing a movement upward, even though it's still a communistic country. But it seems to me, and please inform me and, and our audience, it seems to me like the population of China, which is 1.4 billion people, they're taking on globalization. They're, they've learned. They've learned. And, and they even admit this currency manipulation and all these things they ran into, trying to understand the economic market from a global standpoint. It seems to me they're catching up very, very fast, and they are in the process of implementing globalization process. Okay. And the United States, under the current regime, is withdrawing from the globalization process. Am I right or, or am I making it too simplistic? Yeah, here's, um, I, I have some problems with the way you describe that, okay? And you can push back if you want, obviously, you'll push back if you, do, <laughs> if you want to. Uh, countries don't trade. Companies trade. People trade, okay? And so uh, the, the Chinese government and the American government and other governments uh, attempt to regulate it a little bit, uh, and the Chinese government owns uh, state-run enterprises that are really inefficient uh, as they go. The, the, the Chinese uh, entry into the global system was, was based on market principles. Uh, the government under Mao had uh, restricted profits, uh, controlled prices, and uh, uh, the net result was you couldn't use market signals. It was, it was illegal to make a profit. Uh, you had to work on the collective farm. You had to work in the, in the uh, state-run factory uh, and uh, uh, take the wage that they gave you, and you were not allowed to uh, grow a garden, and, uh, and people did, okay? Uh, but uh, And the net result was... A uh, really low standard of living. Now, 1978, Deng Xiaoping takes over, and uh, he had been during the Cultural Revolution in China. He had been sent back into the into a province to work in a truck factory, and had seen how inefficient it was. Uh, and so, when on their own, a bunch of uh, Chinese cooperatives. Uh, uh, way out in the provinces, way far away from Beijing, in the interior. Uh, we're starving to death. What are we going to do? And the comrade in charge, the commissar in charge, he didn't call him a commissar, but the guy in charge saw his people starving and said, okay, uh, you know, you can grow stuff on your own. And uh, what, I'm trying to remember the name, Nine Dragons Village is what I remember. And suddenly Nine Dragons Village Okay, has gone from common, a common system to a, uh, to we're going to let you run privately, and suddenly they're producing seven, eight, nine times the amount of food that you were getting in in the other one, uh, and Deng Xiaoping some, uh, saw this going on in several villages scattered around China, usually far from the overseeing of the uh, of the bureaucrats in in Beijing, and. Uh, he let it go, okay? And he started sending his people, he even went, to Japan and to, to the United States and to Europe, and they were amazed at the productivity and the standards of living that they were seeing. 
And so he began a gradual process of we're going to what he, we're going to do uh, socialism with a capitalist face. That's that is, what I'm. Yeah, that's what I'm getting to. They're instituting right uh, free mark, more free market oriented principles. Okay, and under Deng Xiaoping, it was fairly wide open economically, not politically, but but economically. They set up special enterprise zones uh, next to Hong Kong, next to Shanghai, and some other big cities along the coast where people were allowed to make profits. And suddenly they had these big, you know, huge cities where uh, the, uh, the little uh, city, I think it's, well, I'm going gonna, I'm for, gonna to forget the name, the little village, fishing village next, uh, uh, next to Hong Kong in the Pearl River is suddenly a big city with all the trade going on as they're allowing uh, all this stuff to flow through Hong Kong. And they start to grow on their standard of living on the eastern in the eastern part of China begins to rise, okay, and they just let it kind of go all out while Deng Xiaoping is in power. And after Deng Xiaoping, uh, they uh, they kept it going under the next two presidents. The current one is going wants to get back to a more Maoist system. There's supposed to be more regulations and so on going on. Markets are decentralized, okay. Uh, massive production, massive productivity occurs when you let individuals follow uh, their inclinations and and run trial and error experiments about what it is that consumers want and they and they can deal with. And when it comes time to industrialize, the only successful way that we've ever found to transfer uh, stuff from one country to another is for a big company like IBM to see a market in Hong Kong or in China somewhere and go and invest in China. That is set up a factory, bring IBM managers and in a uh, do, do as I do, uh, teach the Chinese who don't know anything about managing a big, a big uh, entity like this, a big complex entity like this. And, and you gradually, they gradually learn by doing in the, in the course of that. Okay. So foreign investment is really the, the, uh, the, the mechanism by which China got the knowledge it needed, okay? China didn't get it. The companies in China got it, okay? Now, the government is, uh, is seated people inside of this trying to get a handle on it, manipulate it, and, and so on. But uh, I, don't have, I don't think that China will uh, have the same kind of success if they clamp down on these trial and error experiments, which seems to be what Xi Jinping, the current leader, is yeah. is trying to do, but uh, in order to do that, China followed the same path that Japan in the 70s and Hong Kong in the 50s, and every other country has followed. That is, you start out with a um, uneducated, low-skilled society, and you make junk. Okay, and hope you can sell a little bit of it in order to acquire uh, the the uh, capital to and the know-how to increase. And so you move from uh, when I was a kid, all the junk came from Hong Kong. Mine was Japan. And when you were, and then the next was Japan, and yeah. then the next was China. Okay, because uh, the, people have to get skills and they have to learn how to manage complex systems and they have to learn to deal with complex ma machinery. You can build. You can build a factory, a shoe, uh, 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 
Uh, William Easterly talks about, uh, he's an expert on Africa, about uh, foreign aid programs coming from the UN and the World Bank that go into Ghana and build a, a shoe factory, okay? And it sits empty because nobody knows how to run it. And because the Ghanans uh, said, this is what we need, the Ghana government said, this is what we need. We need a shoe factory. And, the sh and it was basically a waste of money because nobody knows how to run it. You have to get the people in who know. Well, that's what China did. That's what India is doing now is uh, bringing in the know-how and, uh, uh, you know, in improving their, their schools and their university systems and, you know, like you say, sending people to the United States. But um, it's a – markets are decentralized systems. Uh, people seek out profits where they are. They seek out low prices if you can do it with low – low-wage labor, like make a shoe or, or textiles, that's probably not going to be done in the United States anymore. And people who uh, would like their job protected there, uh, that would, in the long run, make us poorer, okay? Because we're a high-value-added country. England is a high-value-added country. Uh, and uh, the people who can't add high value uh, are simply just going to have to compete with low-wage labor. So the answer is to, uh, you know, everybody in America speaks English. That's one of the characteristics of, of high value now because that's the, world, the, the world's language that, 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 that uh, markets use. The Chinese would love it to be uh, uh, Mandarin. Mandarin, but uh, uh, and maybe someday there'll be two. Who knows? So China's, China's growing really big. But you have to remember – that even though the Chinese GDP is, by some measures, a little more than half than ours, there's one called um, uh, PPP, uh, I'm forgetting what it stands for, where you try to equate the value of a good in one country with another country, uh, that it may be as big as ours, okay, there are two measures, but their per capita GDP is still $10,000. It's mm. still really low. Uh, they've got a long way to go before they reach the kind of standard of, li uh, of living in China that we do. Now, uh, in the video that I showed in the speech, you saw that people in Hong Kong have a standard of living, in Shanghai have a standard of living equal to in to Italy, okay, people in Italy and so on. So it's, it's not distributed equally. But uh, uh, so I see globalization as a good thing. Uh, anybody who gets uh, away from subsistence and starts specializing. Usually they're producing for themselves and the people around them. Uh, so the Chinese get richer by selling to each other primarily and some of the things they can sell to us. And when they do, when, uh, when I can buy my clothes uh, from some other place, that frees me up. I don't have to make clothes anymore, which is a low-value-added uh, kind of an occupation. Uh, and it frees us up to spend our time in high-value-added high value occupations like finance, computers, uh, agriculture is now a really high-value-added. You know, one farmer grows uh, uh, more food than my, my grandfather. Uh, you know, 80 of my grandfather's contemporaries could grow. One farmer can do that now, sitting in his tractor, connected to the Internet, plowing his field, uh, based on what the satellite, where the satellite tells him to, and and uh, planning uh, the right stuff in the right place, it, it, it's uh, you know our entertainment, our uh, 
our insurance, our services. Uh, we lead the world. We still do. We're still the leading manufacturer in the world. We just do it with so many, many few people that, uh, you know, people used to be able to make money and to have a good living in steel. The guy running the steel mill now has to know how to run a computer and a, ro and a bunch of robots. And so right. it's, uh, that, that's how I see it. But when we get richer, we have extra money that we didn't have before, okay? And the people who are doing this are getting richer. And they can use that money to buy stuff that nobody ever thought of before, creating new opportunities. This is the way it's always worked, creating opportunities for creative people to think up things that you and I have never thought of before that our children are going to think are normal, just like you and I know, okay, that our kids, the kids we see at this college, are running around with miraculous uh, array of uh, of goods and and available services that they have that you and I could never have dreamed of and thought it would be out if if it could exist it would be outside of the of our ability ever to afford it okay just in our lifetime and that's that's the way this system works but here's my question then uh, going along exactly exactly what you're doing here then what we're saying is we're going into, I'm, I'm thinking global, we go into these smaller countries because they're unskilled labor. Uh, we can build a facility for them to manufacture, help yeah. us manufacture a widget. I, IBM can. Or, IBM, yeah. right. And and then also you play the political game because you got a five-year tax abatement. And you play the political game to get the right people and make the proposals and see if you can manip manipulate it that way. In the meantime, you have a middle class for the very first time in this little country. And then eventually, and correct me if I'm wrong, everybody wants a little bit more money uh, for the same job. Give me, I want a raise or I want a promotion. So that when that gets to, yeah, when it gets to that point, then we'll use IBM. IBM takes a look and say, let's start looking elsewhere. What other countries out there that we can do the same thing to? And we'll just bail out. Yeah. But the fact that somebody wants additional income doesn't mean the company's going to give it to them, okay? You actually have to be more skilled. You have to actually have to have the more experience before uh, any company that's watching its bottom line can pay you more. Uh, the reason we make so much money in the United States, we, you know, the per capita GDP of the United States is approaching $60,000, all right? Now, uh, and so... You know, the average income that the, an American earns is, is uh, two or three times, four or five times as high as, as someone in China, okay? And the reason we can do that is because we add high value. You cannot pay an engineer $7.25 an hour. You try to open an engineering company and hire engineers for $7.25 an hour for minimum wage, and you'll get nobody because... They add so much value, they can demand 100 bucks an hour for, for their time. And so you have to pay them something close to that. Uh, the engineering firm has to pay for, you know, the secretaries and the trucks and all of that. They don't pay them quite what they generate for the company, but almost. Because if you don't, then the guy quits and goes and works for the competitor who will pay him because he's generating that kind of revenue to the company. So... Uh, you get people in China who came in with no skills and, you know, 50 cents an hour, whatever they were working for, okay? But after they get skills and after they learn management and they know how to run the machine 
and they know how to fix the machine because they watched the guy who trained them fix it. Okay, now uh, they their their skills and their experience uh, mean that they could quit and help somebody else if you don't pay them. This is this is the way incomes go up. This is why we're a high income country because that's what I mean by high value added. All right, so. Okay, so we've got uh, this process ongoing, and we see that the manufacturing uh, activities are moving outside of the United States. No, they're not. They're not. No. Why aren't Why aren't they moving out? I've, <laughs> you know, I see globalization. I see people. We just went through a scenario whereby the the uh, we want to make more profit, so we got to lower our labor costs. So we're going to find a country and build a facility and yeah, train them. But, but that assumes that every Every economic activity you're engaged in requires low, low skilled labor, but you can do it with low skilled labor and you can't, you can't run a financial system with, with people who don't know extremely sophisticated, uh, uh, things. And you have to pay them a lot of money in, in order to acquire people like that. Well, or we can go to India yeah, and hire these companies with these high skilled in some industries. Yeah. Like the like our IRS yeah. with our tax. Re- remember, when when we get a Chinese and an Indian middle class, that's people who are generating more goods and services than used to be generated in that country. The country has created more wealth. The amount of wealth isn't fixed. We're not dividing a pie that's the same size all of the time. The pie grows when these people learn skills because they are able to create more stuff, more goods and services. Okay. The, the number of goods and services in the world increases as you add, take these low-skilled people in India and China, and you educate them, and you train them, and you give them experience, the amount of stuff in the world grows. So people in India have really more stuff. It's, it, you know, in the United States, if, if you go back to the description I gave you of the way people lived 200 years ago, they didn't have a lot of stuff. No. That stuff had to be created, and it's created by uh, people uh, being, uh, first of all, being entrepreneurial and then figuring, uh, learning by doing, trial and error. You figure out, you know, how to run an electric company. You figure out how to run a railroad. You you know, nobody knew how to do that. And when people don't know how to do that, they become more valuable because the railroad now goes more places because of the skills that I have. Therefore, the railroad can pick up more uh, more goods out in Nebraska that it couldn't do before, and uh, the world just has more stuff. Okay, so world per capita world GDP is growing. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There's enough for everybody. Uh, if one of the ways in a low value added industry that you can uh, chase profits is to go to this other country with the low wage labor, but you can't do that with the highly High, the highly sophisticated, technologically oriented uh, kinds of things that we tend to do in the United States and that they do in Britain, that they do in Germany, that, they, that they're now starting to do in China, that they've been doing in Japan for a long time. You need people with, uh, who, who are uh, more than just someone who's just moved off the farm uh, who can't, and that's why the chew factory doesn't work in Ghana, okay? I'm thinking you throw a lot of stuff at us. Yeah. I'm sure people, our audience is out there going, I never thought of that. 
you're raising up a lot of good issues. Um, commercial culture is a topic. Oh, okay. McCloskey, uh, yeah, McCloskey thinks yeah, that. Yeah, Deidre at the University of Chicago. Right. Yeah. Uh, who is my guru on most of this. Uh, she says there are two things that, that uh, allowed us to get a hockey stick, to, to allowed us to get this this uh, uh, magnitude of growth that we've. Since we're in, we're in part two, can, uh, you brought that up and explained it. Can you give us just real quickly what you're referring to when you say the hockey stick? Uh, I showed you I showed a graph in in the speech showing per capita income over time, okay, and uh, uh, what the economic historians have discovered is that for most of the world's history, everywhere, no exceptions, people lived on three dollars a day <laughs> up until 1800, when it began to change. And in the Netherlands first, then Great Britain, then the United United States, then Northeastern Europe, and she says what they did, and she makes a really compelling case for this. Okay, what they did is they introduced economic freedom that we just talked about, but the culture had changed because of the way that the Protestant Reformation uh, uh, took place in the Netherlands and in England. They're, they're right across the channel from each other, shared a lot of stuff. Uh, because of the way that took place, you got for the first time anywhere the idea that someone at the bottom of the social status scale on the income scale, the peasant, the serf, the, the, uh, the indigent person, what, whatever, the people who were uh, the poor who were always with us were allowed to rise, okay? And they were allowed to rise through commerce through entrepreneurship entrepreneurship is condemned by classical by the classical part of western civilization uh, read plato and aristotle about people who who are engaged in the market and they're they you know that's what uh, people who have no morals do kind of a thing uh, read the christian fathers okay uh, and people who are engaged in commerce are uh you know it's easier for the the uh camel to go to the eye of the needle and to be saved and and so they had restrictions on uh, on interest rates usury laws they had restrictions on wages all kinds of things okay all that in the in the end it creates a society in which if you're born in the lower reaches of the social status structure you can't ever get out of it okay there are very few examples of people getting out the puss in boots story is one Okay, and it's a story because it's so exceptional. Well, suddenly uh, uh, the system changes and the, the, the people in the high status areas want private property uh, primarily to protect themselves against the king. They want property protected. This is the way it, the English Revolution worked its way out. And, uh, and suddenly it becomes possible for people to rise. But you have to say to people, if you rise, we think that's good. Not that we think you're the, the uh, uh, next, you, you're on your way to hell. Okay, the culture has to say, if you provide goods and services that other people voluntarily buy from you and you become wealthy as a result, you've done a good thing. You're a good person. Uh, you deserve our, our praise. You deserve to be elevated in, in the status distinctions that we create in society. Not, it's not the warrior anymore. It's not the priest anymore. 
it's the entrepreneur. It's the the way the, the way that we most people have been taught to think about Edison. Okay, uh, the way that everybody almost everybody thinks about Steve Jobs now. Okay, uh, that you you gave me so much stuff and made my life so much better that I don't care that you're a billionaire. It's fine. McCloskey says that's the deal. If you want a hockey stick that, you, that society has to make, okay? In the first generation, you let these people get rich. And it may seem filthy rich. And you may think nobody should have that much money, okay? But if you do that, it encourages other people to engage in the same kinds of activities, okay? For the reason uh, I'd like a piece of that for myself. I'd like my family to be a little bit more secure. I'd like to... to uh, 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 avoid some of the harshness of life and be able to take care of some of the, be, be able to afford and have access to some of the nicer things in life. You get a culture like that. It's the one I think you and I were raised in. Okay. It's certainly the one my grandfather was raised in and his grandfather was raised in. Okay. Uh, in a society like that, then you get all of this this growth happening that's where it comes from but people have to be free to do it it's a kind of radical egalitarianism that i'm describing here not an egalitarianism that says we have to redistribute income from these people but one that says the person on the bottom might be the next uh, entrepreneur that makes my life better and so i better we better figure out ways to have fewer impediments in their way because i don't know where it's going to come from okay uh andrew carnegie father was an was in absolute poverty okay when his family moved here uh no way to predict that this kid's going to be uh build the steel industry okay he wasn't the nicest person in the world okay but he did give us cheaper steel every year he was in business just like john d rockefeller gave us cheaper kerosene every every year he was in business and made made all those consumers better off and so from this perspective the uh, massive fortunes that they generated are, are justified. Another thing economists do is they add up all of the value. Okay? They have measures to add up all of the value that's created by the, the kinds of innovations Rockefeller did in oil or the kind of innovations that, that Jobs did in, his, in, in what he did. And it turns out that these people, even with the fabulous income that they get, okay, the consumer surplus, the amount of value that you and I get as consumers just swamps the $60 billion fortune that Bill Gates got. Now, it's distributed among all of us, but my life is, is way better because Bill Gates did what he did. My life's way better because John D. Rockefeller did what he did. Uh, you know, Henry Ford uh, was an absolute horrible human being, in my view, okay? But what he did made my life magnitudes better off, okay? I don't have to wander around in a, uh, uh, in, uh, on city streets covered with horse droppings, okay? But in St. George would dry up in the summer and, and they get up in the air and get in your lungs. It's, uh, you know, it's, that's, the, that's the idea. Fantastic. That's the cultural idea. So it, the... Uh Justification, I can understand this. The justification because it spread the value, the quality of life has improved so dramatically as a result. You kind mm -hmm. of ignore 
the massive amounts of income yeah. that these individuals you, have. You have to, okay? You know. Because it's the goose that's laying the golden egg for all of the rest of us. And if you strangle the goose, it doesn't lay the golden egg anymore. If society says uh, we're going to put a lid on how much you can earn because we think it's immoral, uh, when societies do that, then we get uh, uh, growth slows down. Uh, and when growth slows down, the people that are harmed the most are the people at the bottom of the income scale. It's the price you pay for a massively wealthy society. You've got to let those entrepreneurs yours get rich, but you mentioned something else in the way that you did globalization, and that is uh, the people who uh, who get rich partially or fully by going to the government and getting favors, okay? And that usually means restricting entry, restricting the, the, the ability of people to get into the, the industry, which is what we do with a tariff, which is what we do when we license occupations, okay? We say, if somebody could do that particular thing in a new way or a better way or a cheaper way, you're not going to get to until you get the right credential or you're not going to get to because you come from the wrong country, then you undermine the, 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 the system and, uh, uh, and reduce the total amount of growth. That's why the tariff that the president has done is going to be so bad. For everybody. Yeah. Including what I'm hearing, the middle class is going oh, sure. to right, prices are going to rise. I, I buy cars. Okay. We all live in housing, uh, our infrastructure, everything that uses steel. Okay. The price is going up. And aluminum. Okay? And yeah. And uh, 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 there'll be, I think there's what, 150,000 steel workers who will be a little better off. There are, uh, the last estimate I saw, somewhere around 6 million jobs dependent on the importation of for, foreign steel. That is, uh, they bring in something that they do in Switzerland or something that they do in China or something they do in Japan. And then uh, here they convert it into some good or service, okay? Their costs are going up. And when their costs go up, they, don't, they can't hire as many people, they can't give as many wages, and the costs are going to be distributed now among the six million uh, direct workers, and who knows how many indirect workers and consumers will be worse off. Usually when economists study this after the fact, we find that uh, absurd things like uh, every job that George Bush saved with his two and a half year steel tariffs back in 1993 and 94 uh, cost $800,000 per job, okay? So, uh, it's it, it doesn't work out. So <clears throat> let me ask you just one more question here. Um, capitalism, I'm going to give you your big finale here. Capitalism versus socialism. If we look at uh, fundamental economic institutions, capitalism is what? Private, property, voluntary? Uh, I, think you're, I think you're looking at uh, what the, the summary of it is the way that uh, this is always done in economics textbooks. That's where I got, got that, is they say, uh, what are we going to produce? We have, an economic system has to decide what are we going to produce and how are we going to produce it and who gets it. Okay, those are the three economic questions. And I, I didn't ever think that was quite enough, and so I added what's the fundamental economic institution, private property or collective property. 
okay? So uh, the three questions in capitalism is, uh, what are we going to produce? That's decided by consumer choice. That's that consumer sovereignty that I tried to emphasize last time. Uh, how are we going to produce it? Uh, okay, when consumers decide what they're going to produce, then that means that uh, businesses have to decide the most efficient, effective, costless, cost-effective uh, uh, way to do that, okay? And they have to compete with each other to find out what that is. And that's the creative destruction because some of them won't. Some of them will be successful and some of them won't. So for me, the primary characteristics of a capitalist system are that consumers make the choices as long as they're voluntary and not, not coerced. Uh, businesses have to deal with those consumer choices by being on their toes and, and making sure that they satisfy consumer needs or we're going to let them go out of business, creative destruction. And then you have to do this deal that McCloskey talks about, which is people who are successful at serving consumer needs get to have the money. You have to have that culture. So you don't, uh, you get an unequal distribution of income. It's a characteristic of the system. The socialist response to that is we don't want uh, this group of people to have so much more income than everybody else. We have to find ways to equalize it. Okay. And so they take a moral position. Uh, originally, they took a, a efficiency position and said, we can set up a common system because everybody will work for the good of everybody else, uh, which was way too idealistic, it turns out. Uh, but we'll set up a moral system that's better than this uh, greedy, uh, materialistic uh, uh, capitalist system where people get really rich and other people don't have as much. Uh, and so we're going to distribute incomes equally. Okay, we're going to work for income equality. Okay, but the only way to do that, okay, it, because as my our discussion of private property showed, people won't do that on their own. You have to use some sort of coercive planning, and so uh, the decision about what to produce is made by government experts. The decision about uh, how to produce it, again, made by government government experts. And my claim is they're not really experts because this is, this is a complex, dynamic system, and there are no experts that know how to manage such a system. Fantastic. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we're, time is up, and this has been part two of Capitalism versus Socialism. And uh, Professor Green has really, over the last two sessions of TIPS, has really brought up a lot of issues and comparative uh, ideas for us to consider. Uh, I want to say to you, Professor Green, thank you so much for all the time you've dedicated to uh, coming on the air for our TIPS program. I'm certain that all the listeners out there appreciate uh, all of your ideas and, uh, and reasons as to why you've adopted capitalism as being superior to socialism. Uh, I just want to thank you. I know you've been very, very busy, so take that, this much time to help us understand your adopted position is great. Thank you, Bob. Glad to do it. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of part two of Capitalism is Superior to Socialism, as presented by Professor Joe Green at Dixie State University's Political Science and History Department. 
uh, looking forward to hearing and uh, seeing you again. I, those of you uh, were on the air on Facebook and YouTube now, as well as we're on KDXI 100.3 FM at uh, St. George Radio here on the campus of Dixie State University. So until next time, I uh, hope you have a uh, great day and a great week. Bye now.